Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, ants, galaxies, and bad breath. We'll also be joined by Dr. John Bonner to talk about the science of size biology. In addition, you can find out what the Alfbau principle is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokoton 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. Coming up right here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of February. <laughs> February is already here. It's amazing how the year has gone by so quickly already. 11 more months left, right? <laughs> You're already marking him down. Yes. It's like a man trapped in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see any end to this. <laughs> At the very end, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I lost my animal of the week. Well, maybe I should chime in with one then. Here we go. It's time for the animal of the week. Okay. <laughs> wow. I actually get to do this. Ants will bite off each other's sexual organs in order to prevent them from mating. Isn't that a crime of humans? That... <laughs> in certain sectors of society, that's maybe somewhat titillating. <laughs> yes. So it turns out that in queenless ant colonies, one or just a few workers corner the mating market. A particular species called diacama do so by mutilating every other ant. And the way they do this is as soon as the ant is born, they bite off their mating appendage. <laughs> wow. Study done by Christian Paters of the Pierce and Marie Curie University in Paris, France. Mm-hmm. We're wondering whether or not the newborns would ever fight back in this case. Uh-huh. What happens to them? They do fight back, but only in certain cases. Or if it looks like an ant which has recently given birth trying to bite off their appendage, then uh-huh. they won't fight back. Okay. But if it looks like one that hasn't given birth recently, they will fight back. The rationale being that the one who just gave birth is probably their mother. Right. And the ones who didn't give birth are probably their siblings. Yeah. If they were to actually reproduce, they'd be passing on about the same amount of genetic information as the mother. Right. But compared to the uh, siblings, mm-hmm. they pass on about a third as much. Oh, I see. So it makes sense for them to not fight back with the mother, but to, in fact, fight back with the siblings. That's the rationale for why ants will fight back sometimes when their sexual organs are about to be bitten off. <laughs> so I wonder if this is something evolution must make their species much hardier by <laughs> eliminating the less aggressive ones. You either fight back or you're, you're done for. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly wouldn't want to get a scrap one of one of these guys. <laughs> All right, so that was the Animal Fact of the Week and cool. uh, published in the recent edition of Animal Behavior. So, Charles, do you wish you could get rid of that smell from your breath and once you uh, smoke something like pot or cigars? <laughs> or a pot cigar. <laughs> Among certain people, that after odor is not very pleasant. I think the actual odor is not very pleasant. <laughs> really? I like the burning smell. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've always found it very Before foul. Before it was burnt. Okay. Well, when I was an undergrad, the lab I worked in, 
the principal investigator used to smoke these really foul-smelling cigars in his office, uh-huh. and it would just permeate through the, the hallway. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so not a very pleasant thing, and turned me off uh, cigars for a long time. <laughs> I guess people characterize this odor as something, anything from a burning yard waste to uh, something more earthy in your yard, in the forest. Chemists have been figuring out what exactly these odor-causing compounds are. If they can, they can probably find ways to neutralize it. So Russell Bazemore, an analytical chemist and an odor scientist, was able to figure out what some of these compounds are. And there's three main ones, chemistry compounds, pyrazines, pyridines, and pyroles. These are the trace compounds that cause the bad breath. So now that I've identified these compounds, there's work underway to figure out how to uh, eliminate them. Maybe just creating plants that don't actually produce these compounds <laughs> might be a good way to go about it. Yeah, there's hope for people with uh, bad breath out there. Excellent. It's uh, a very nice article in Chemical and Engineering News. All right, as we like to do on the show, we're jumping from bad breath all the way to other galaxies. I see absolutely no correlation. <laughs> None whatsoever, in fact. <laughs> if we actually organize the show, maybe there might be. <laughs> we'll just say, okay, let's bad breath in planets. So do you think other Earth-like planets exist around stars? According to Carl Sagan, the, the probability is not zero, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out most of the solar systems that have been discovered thus far, mm-hmm. what they found is just these giant gas-like planets like Jupiter. Okay. Um, it's kind of hard to detect the Earth-like planets. And it's thought that most of these solar systems couldn't hold a uh, Earth-like planet because the gas giants are found to be really kind of close to the sun in what's known as the habitable zone. Mm-hmm. So a group of researchers have actually modeled this and figured out that even if a uh, gas giant planet kind of moves through the habitable zone in migration, an Earth-like planet can still develop in that region. Okay, so Dagobah is still out there somewhere, right? <laughs> well, it could be, actually, because the models actually predict that they would be uh, particularly water-rich and iron-poor compared to the Earth. Oh, okay. That's why he's so green. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just needs more calcium in his life. <laughs> it was published in a recent edition of Science. So have you ever been afraid that you're too short? I'm still striving for my MBA career. But it turns out for genes, especially the ones that code for serotonin transporter, if it's too short, it may actually lead to depression. But if it's too short, don't you get a non-functional transporter? Or maybe it just messes with the function in some way. It turns out people who have the shorter genes respond poorly to stress. Hmm. And so as a result, the amygdala brain region is overactivated. Okay. So essentially they can't clear the serotonin as well as some other uh, people. That's why it seems like it. These individuals show higher levels of rumination. So they like to reflect on their problems and their uh, stresses, huh? I, I suppose so. Either that or they like to chew the cut, I guess, is the other, <laughs> the other definition of that. <laughs> I, I, I like to chew the cut. I only have one stomach, though, so it's kind <laughs> like of... like grass, huh? <laughs> Are there any other examples of short genes that could cause the depression, or is this kind of a novel finding? Maybe causing a depression. Okay. Maybe not be exclusive, but there's a very nice article in our very favorite journal, The Proceedings. <laughs> of the National. Academies of Science. Penis. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is Berkeley Grok, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Dr. John Bonner joins us to talk about why size matters. So stay right there.
right, welcome back to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, you've probably heard it said more than once that size matters. Nowhere is this more true than among living organisms. From single-celled bacteria, size defines much of what they are capable of. But why should size matter so? Well, joins today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Professor John Tyler Bonner. Professor Bonner is Professor of Ecology at Princeton University. His research on evolution and development, the author of several popular books on the subject, including The Evolution of Complexity and First Signals. His recent book, Why Size Matters, From Bacteria to Blue Whales, and explores the role of size in living creatures. Professor Bonner, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Hello. Can you talk about the evolution of complexity and how do we go about defining this scientifically? <laughs> well, of uh, describing complexity or defining complexity. And what I've done, and other people as well, has picked something you can actually measure. And there are measures of complexity which are very mathematical and have to do with how various things relate to one another and, and can be expressed mathematically. But the simplest way out of just saying the number of cell types in an organism is indication of the complexity. So if you have a, something like a very simple alga with two cell types, that's less complex than a human being that probably has well over 100 cell types. Muscle cells, nerves, and so forth. What are the advantages to big or small size? That is entirely related to how big the organism is. If the organism is small, it doesn't need cell type. But if it's large, then it does. And to illustrate the point, let's consider the business of oxygen getting to the cells, which is required for all aerobic organisms. And if you're very, very small, then oxygen can diffuse directly. You don't need more than just a few cell type, like a mammal or a human being. And to get the oxygen to your cells, you need all sorts of elaborate things like lungs and uh, circulatory system, red blood cells. Uh, and so it simply says that if we're as big as we are, we couldn't manage without them. I see, I see. And are there physical limitations to how big an organism can get? Well, I, I think, that, yes, there are indeed limitations, and they're in physical, geometric, or, or whatever you want to call them. It's a case of size increases, imposes necessary restrictions on what can be done. Uh, you get very big, you have to do something in order for the cells to survive or whatever. So trees, for example. Yes, yes. It's amazing how tall trees have got or can get. So, so I don't think that's uh, so much a limiting thing. Uh, as the need for being strong, to have a thick trunk. So the bigger you get, you have to have the trunk get disproportionately thick to support it. And I think that's more of a limitation. It's amazing that when you think of tall trees on the West Coast, the sequoias, there doesn't seem to be any limit as to getting the water up there. But however, there's a distinct limit on how thin they can be without buckling. Curious, is there a selective advantage for increases in size? It's not an advantage to do those things. It's almost a necessity. In other words, if you get bigger, then there are certain things that are required, like strength and enough surface for diffusion and things of that sort. Um, I'm curious, do you think then, is it better to be bigger or smaller? Uh, obviously, single-celled organisms dominate the population of the planet. One might think a smaller size is preferred. I think one answer is that they're the first ones that got there. And the second answer is they're extremely successful uh, in that they can live under incredibly varied environments, even environments without oxygen. And so they're survivors uh, to an amazing extent. And furthermore, 
they also provide the basic food for all larger organisms. So there, there are a lot of reasons why there are so many small ones. Okay, well, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this whole issue of uh, size mattering in biology? Uh, it's actually so long ago, I don't really remember, except that I've always been fascinated. And um, and my book, when I was about 12 years old or something like that, was The Science of Life by H.G. Wells, uh, Julian Huxley, and G.P. Wells. Uh, and they have those fabulous uh, old drawings uh, showing the biggest animals and the smallest animals and plants, both animals and plants. So I think at the I became infected uh, when I was a preteen boy. <laughs> so I, I'm curious then, do you think scientists then ignore size except just sort of as a peripheral matter to be investigated? Well, yes, I think, I think they, they do think of it as a peripheral matter. In other words, and I can understand this, it's quite sensible to think of an animal, let's say a mouse or an elephant or a giraffe or whatever it is, and you think of that as being a concrete object uh, which has all sorts of interesting behaviors, structure, morphology, everything else. And it's just incidental that one is bigger than the other. Uh, but what position I'm, it's actually size determines uh, because if you get bigger, you've got to do certain things, got to make certain changes. Otherwise, you cannot exist. And natural selection would eliminate organisms that didn't accommodate structural changes for the size increase. It seems to me that size is, has been neglected, although there is, going back to Galileo and many people afterwards, they certainly appreciated that size is important, especially engineers when they build bridges and things of that sort. But however, the biologist tends to think of the animal or the plant first. <laughs> I guess size should be more central, I guess, to how we think about the evolution of organisms. Yes, I, I, exactly, exactly. Much more central than is uh, generally uh, recognized. I think it has something to do with the fact that size is a material object. It's sort of a, a description of a geometry. Uh, it isn't the real thing. It just says something about the real thing. Hmm. Uh, well, this is, certainly is a very fascinating topic. And Professor Bonner, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Berkeley Rock Science Show and talking about this uh, very fascinating issue. Okay. Oh, that's very nice. And we were just talking to John Bonner on the science of size. In a few moments, the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of Week. So, stay right here. and we're ready to play a game. The Rockatron 5000 is, our, of course, our formerly known as the TRS-80. Chosen the topic, Does Size Matter? Okay. Here we go. Uh, person number one, Donald Trump. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I, th- I think it does. <laughs> okay, uh, here we go. Uh, person number two, Martha Stewart. I think of her as a business person. And I'll be important to every business person in that the, the more you can sell and the bigger you get, the, the, the richer you are. So in that sense, yes. But uh, that's rather restricted and non-biological. <laughs> okay, and uh, Charles Darwin. Well, actually, you know, ever since I got involved in this recent book, I went into Darwin's books, all the places I saw, and it's quite disappointing. Uh, on the other hand, I, I excuse him. I think that He's perhaps a perfect example of, uh, of a biologist who's more interested in the organisms than he is in how big they are. <laughs> Person number four, Barack Obama. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm completely at loss with how to answer that question. Looks to me as though he's a splendid politician. And as far as size goes, I just wish him every big success. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, and finally, number five, uh, the President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, well, <laughs> I have so many feelings about George Bush that I'm not sure that size ever entered into them. But, uh, I draw a complete blank because I, my, all of my thoughts are obscured by all sorts of other things that he has done or thinks uh, the way he thinks and so forth. That so thank you for sticking around playing our game. Oh, that's very nice. And Bruce Lee was the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the alpha principle? Alpha principle say the electron in your energy shell must fill in from the lowest energy for your atom. And that is the alpha principle. Hey Winnie, it's Eeyore. Do you have any Percocet? Well, if you do, email me at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but... Does anybody win anything? And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. And if you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music